This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.25, Welcome to the Jungle, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and RGM79 mass-produced podcast host. And I'm Nina, new Gundam fan and total nuisance. As always, we have many people to thank. First, thanks to our new patrons, Zachary S., Matthew A., Casper N., Zeta Reserve, and Martin T., This puts us up to 50 patrons, which is amazing. Thank you all. You make the podcast possible. And as a special thanks for reaching 50 patrons, next month we are going to release an extra, extra bonus episode. More on that coming soon. We'd also like to thank some reviewers, in particular reviewers from outside of the US, which because of the way Apple Podcasts handles reviews, we haven't been able to see until very recently. So If these are a little bit delayed, we apologize. We really appreciate the reviews. So thank you so much to G.I. Jim from the UK, Ikane from Norway, Malady from Canada, and Underscore Pez from the UK. Thank you all. And thank you to The Red Comet 16229 on Instagram for giving us a shout out and recommending us to all of your followers. Thank you so much. We are also pleased to be able to announce our contest winners. We have four magnificent prize packs that will be going out to our winners. Everyone is getting a full copy of First Gundam, a Frabo and the Orphans band t-shirt, as well as a collection of postcards and stickers, both from MSB, as well as some stickers from the artist Ink Designer, who very graciously donated them to the contest. Everyone will also be getting a different Gundam art print. Additionally, the grand prize winner will be getting the Real Grade RX-78-2 Gundam and a system base to go with it, as well as a copy of the Gundam novelization written by Tomino and translated by Frederick Schott. All of the other prizes are getting differently colored Haropla. Blue, yellow, and red. And the blue Haropla winner will also be winning a copy of The Astro Boy Essays, a book about Osama Tezuka by Frederick Schott, his longtime translator. And now the winners. The red Haropla prize goes to Action Awesome on Instagram. The yellow Haropla prize goes to Mandeep S on Facebook. The blue Haropla prize goes to Dylan Tynes, who follows us on Twitter, Instagram, and wrote us a review. And the grand prize goes to HenryFan3 on Instagram. We will be reaching out to all of you over the next week to get your details, your shipping address, and your t-shirt sizes. Uh, If we can't get in contact with you, unfortunately, we are going to give your prize pack away to another lucky winner. Keep an eye on your inbox. Yeah, especially check the inbox where your spam goes, because we are a couple of randos emailing you to tell you you won a contest. (laughs) We did something a bit different this week. We recorded on the road. It's nice that our podcasting work can travel with us. But it also means we were outside of our studio and we did not have our usual equipment. So you might notice a couple of weird bits of audio here and there. I've done my best to clean them up in post-production, but I don't think I was able to catch everything. It also means we were able to have a special guest. 
Ron, would you introduce yourself? I'll be glad to. Thank you. My name is uh, Ron Gonzalez, and I am primarily responsible for being the uh, creator of about 50% of the team you listen to every <laughs> week. I'm, I'm Nina's dad. Welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. He is also a huge film buff, and the reason I'm as interested in film as I am, so we wanted to get some of his impressions of Mobile Suit Gundam. Yeah, and before this, you had never watched this show before, right? No, that's right. Good point, Tom. Um, I'm a newcomer to Gundam, had no idea what it was all about, and I actually got drawn into watching the show as a result of listening to your first two podcasts. I was intrigued by your use of uh, historical references in regards to, to the show, and that got me to watching. Well, thank you. But you do have a long history, both with film and with anime. I, I do. I'm a, I'm a great fan of anime. Um, I have a ton of film that I have watched and, and continue to collect. Uh, I've, I enjoy it very much. It's just that Gundam is a... In fact, most of the uh, mechanized anime is a field that I had not paid any attention to <laughs> until you two started getting into this, uh, this wonderful adventure. And I I've so much uh, enjoyed the first few episodes. I feel honored to be part of your show. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Let's talk some Gundam. Last week, fed up with military life, Kai departed the White Base in Belfast. There he met Miharu, the young Xeon spy from the last episode, and took her up on her offer of a place to stay for a few days. When Xeon attacked the White Base once again, Kai reluctantly returned, unable to leave his shipmates to struggle without him. In the chaos of battle, Miharu snuck aboard the White Base before it left port. Kai soon discovered her, but determined to keep her out of trouble, he concealed her in his own cabin. Even so, when Xeon launched a new attack, she joined Kai aboard the Gunperry, and there met her fate, leaving Kai alone to mourn the girl no one else knew. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Episodes 29, Tragedy in Jaburo, or Jaburo ni Chiru, and 30, A Wish of War Orphans, or Chisana Boesen. Jaburo ni Chiru more or less means tragedy in Jaburo, but Chisana Boesen means the tiny defense line. Oh, that's really cute and right? terrible. Right? Cute and terrible. It's Gundam all over. Why couldn't they just use that? In our research this week, we talk about orphans, orphanages, and daycare in Japan, the history of robots in Western cinema, visual inspiration and references, Operation Gunnerside, and the San Nazaire raids. But first, the recap. The white base flies over the Amazon, near Federation headquarters in Jaburo, unaware that Xeon submarines are shadowing them. The crew gathers on the bridge, entranced by a mass migration of butterflies. Only Kai sits alone, still grieving Miharu. They see no sign of their destination until Bright contacts the base. And suddenly, a section of dense jungle slides open, revealing the entrance to a massive underground facility. Inside, safely landed and with the door closed behind them once more, Mirai breathes a sigh of relief and it seems the crew can relax at last. But Shar and the Xeon forces tracking the white base now know the location of Jaburo's main entrance. Inside Jaburo, it's repairs for the white base and physical exams for the crew now that they are real soldiers. Amaro's runs long, for some reason. Afterward, he goes to speak with the officer overseeing the repairs, a Lieutenant Woody, and learns that Woody had been engaged to marry Lieutenant Matilda after the Odessa operation. 
They had hoped the White Base crew could attend the wedding. The news hits Amuro hard. He flashes back to the day Matilda died and tries to stammer out an apology. If not for his inexperience, then maybe. But Woody won't hear it. He snaps that Amuro is being conceited, that the Gundam cannot win the war alone and could not have saved Matilda. All Amuro can do, all any of them can do, is their best. He loves the White Base because Matilda cared so much about it, and he's going to do his best to get it ready for what's to come. Alarms begin to sound. Zeon is here. A dozen Gao, supported by Dops, drop bombs and mobile suits into the area. Flares shoot up from the jungle, giving the aerial forces a target. Missiles launch and the barrage begins. Federation jets and anti-aircraft guns begin to fight back against the Xeon forces. The placid jungle of a few hours ago is gone. The white base pilots defend the main entrance to Jaburo, and there see the first Jim mobile suits, mass-produced Gundams, joining the fight. Outside, Shar himself launches in a red Zagok with two wingmen, but one is almost immediately shot down by anti-aircraft fire. The second is destroyed by underwater batteries protecting the river entrance to Jaburo. Undeterred, Shar joins an advance team and leads an attack on two of Jaburo's entrances. The white base crew holds the main entrance, but the second attack catches the Federation off guard, and the engineers working on the white base are forced to join the defenses. Woody remembers how Matilda died to protect the white base. He won't let anything happen to it now. Amuro and Sela rush to the second entrance and find the Red Zagok massacring the defenders, tanks and mobile suits alike. Realizing with dread that it must be Shar, Amuro tries to convince Woody to turn back, that his hovercraft is useless in this kind of fight, but the grieving lieutenant won't hear it. He attacks, and Shar smashes the cockpit like he's swatting a fly. Lieutenant Woody dies the same way Lieutenant Matilda did. As the hovercraft burns, Amuro and the other pilots defeat the rest of the advance team, forcing Shar to retreat. Little time passes before the next episode. The Xeon forces have bombarded Jaburo ceaselessly since Shar's failed infiltration, but to little effect. Unconcerned, the Federation forces in Jaburo return to business. The White Base crew is given official ranks, and Bright receives a promotion to lieutenant. Amuro takes no pleasure in his stripes, and when it's announced that all their shipmates who didn't make it will receive posthumous two-rank promotions, he snaps. Is that all they get? You could at least say thank you. Bright tries to intervene, but the damage is done, and the Federation officer awarding them their ranks goes to slap the impertinent boy. Amuro leans just out of the way, but this gets him in even more trouble and earns him another slap. While the older orphans are made officers, Kika, Katz, and Letts are to be left in Jaburo's childcare facilities. Frau worries that the children won't be happy, separated from their ersatz family on the ship. But Amuro is sure of one thing, young children shouldn't have to see people killing each other. In the childcare center, the orphans have fun, running and laughing, playing in the playground, and being served juice and soft serve by a childcare robot. But they argue with the other children there, and when the one adult working at the center runs out to see what's happened, they flee into the vast, dark caverns of Jaburo. She tries to follow them, but they slide down a rocky slope and are quickly out of sight. Soon Fra, Mirai, and Sela join the hunt for the orphans, but they are already long gone, afraid that if they are found, they will be forced to stay in Jaburo. By chance, the orphans stop to rest in the building housing the new gyms, but Kika sees movement and suddenly they are caught by a force of Xeon saboteurs. Led by Shar himself, these commandos tie and gag the children before placing time bombs all over the mobile suits. Working together, the orphans free each other from the ropes and gags and scramble to remove bombs from the gyms, just as they once saw Amuro remove bombs from the Gundam. They place the explosives in the back of a small car and attempt to drive them all to a remote place away from any people or facilities. By chance, Amuro, Kai, and Hayato meet them en route. Amuro takes over their car while Kai helps the kids to safety. A minute later, Amuro throws himself free as the car and the bombs fly off a cliff 
and explode in the deep crevice below. As their plan falls apart, the Xeon forces try to flee Jaburo, Shar rushing to get to his Zagok, and Sela, still searching for the orphans, come face to face. Neither can believe it. Sela cannot believe that her gentle brother Kazval would join Xeon. Shar cannot believe that his gentle sister Artesia would join any army at all. He asks her to leave the military for him, but before she can answer, someone opens fire and Shar runs to join the rest of his force. Mirai runs up, asking if Sela is okay, and doesn't believe her when Sela claims not to have seen the Xeon officer standing on the rocks right in front of her. Shar orders his men to fall back, their mission is a failure. But the Gundam is coming for them and they cannot run fast enough. Amur destroys all four of the Akagais accompanying Shar, and even slices an arm off Shar's Zagok before Shar is able to escape through an underground river. The childcare officer tries to convince the white base crew that Kika, Katz, and Letts should remain in Jaburo where it's safe. But Kai reminds her, Jaburo has been infiltrated and attacked twice since they arrived. Besides, these aren't average children. They've been fighting alongside the rest of the crew all this time. The officer is forced to admit that maybe the children are better off with their adoptive family. While the rest of the crew celebrates, Sela frets over Shar's request, and Bright receives the unwelcome order that the white base will be a decoy, luring Xeon forces away from the main Federation Space Force. Nature really shows up at the beginning of this episode in a big way. We get these very elaborate, luscious, gorgeous shots of South America. We see the jungles. We see the creatures. The, the river. Monkeys. There's a scene of capybara running alongside <laughs> with the white base. Dolphins. Snakes. More animals than we've seen in any episode. I don't think we've seen hardly any I don't think we've animals. seen an animal until now. Maybe some birds. This is the first episode. <laughs> uh, butterflies. Yeah, and, the, uh, the scene of the butterfly migration. Yeah. Like snakes. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> We're going to come back to slapstick because that snake. <laughs> yeah, we know that the creators care a lot about the environment and about what humanity is doing to the environment at the time that the show takes place. But most of what we know that from is not the show itself. It's from things they've said outside the show. That's a good point. Outside of the first couple of episodes, there's very few references to the environment. Tom highlighted while we were watching, too, there is a, a different use of color, which has been absent before, the oranges and the yellow. It's very yes. warm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, and even during this combat where they've made a point of showing us all this beautiful nature, what I would sort of expect if someone were trying to make a point about what war does to the environment is that we would then see dead animals, destroyed trees, polluted rivers, and we don't really get that. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of attention paid to that part of the destruction in these episodes. What I couldn't get past is the invisibility of this massive Federation military installation. It's all hidden. Right. There are these doors that slide open in the jungle, but then they slide closed again and it's just the jungle. It disappears into nature. A couple of shots when you see the uh, the generals uh, do make reference in the, the maps in the background mm -hmm. to the uh, size of the installation. Oh, and that scene when it's just Bright and Mirai in the, the council chamber with the generals, and it's just the four of them in this massive room. Exactly. And and the maps behind them. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is evident is, uh, if you recall, when the first set of alarms goes off, 
no one is very terribly much worried about it. <laughs> so, oh, two of our uh, outposts are reporting alarms, uh, mm-hmm. but but there's no no sense of urgency really until much later. Well, like in the second of the two episodes, that one outpost is being bombed fairly continuously, and we see that. Yeah. and they're like, oh, it's totally normal. This is how it always is. <laughs> the other thing you get from that though is that this is the Federation main headquarters, and Xeon can basically do anything they want. In the air above it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yes. But I didn't get a sense of vulnerability that is a lot more evident in earlier episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a sense of, oh, maybe we're the underdogs. We're, you know, and, and you don't get that feeling in, in this uh, this two episodes. That, that sense of vulnerability seems to have been pushed back a little bit. Although <laughs> some of that, I think the show tries to tell us is uh, perhaps overconfidence. I thought you were going to bring up the point that uh, that we see a tremendous introduction of new technology. And usually you just see one or two new mechas that come into play. In this episode, there's six or seven different types that we had not seen before. Although I still get a strong sense of the Federation being behind the ball, because whereas Xeon has all of these different specialized mobile suits, you know, for aquatic, for all yes. of these different purposes, this one jumps really well, this one does this, this one does that. All they're mass producing is the Gundam, and it's not even as good. <laughs> and obviously, they're mass producing them at multiple locations. We only see the ones at Jaburo, but to know that Xeon has this much more advanced development. Mm-hmm. It brings up an interesting thought uh, from a historical perspective, whether diversification in particular technologies leads to a faster exhaustion of your natural resources. Mm. I wonder <laughs> if this is a specific reference. What do you th- well? What do you think? It's- I I know it's a specific okay. reference. <laughs> <laughs> well, to what then? Explain. <laughs> I'm guessing, but it, it felt that way. I don't think it's much of a spoiler to point out that Japan lost the Second World War, <laughs> and towards the end, although Japan had the Zero, which was very effective in the early years, towards the end they started developing all of these different prototype fighters, many of which were much better than the Zero, right. but none of which were ever put into mass production, and mm. there were never enough of them to make a difference. I was thinking of Germany, but. I think it applies. Absolutely. The other sort of resource moment that really struck me, and I'll be interested to hear what you guys think of it. Uh, we see that massive fleet of Gao squadrons fly in. Tons mm-hmm. of bombers. Mm-hmm. And shortly thereafter, we see a Zeon officer apologizing to Shar. Oh, I'm sorry we didn't bring enough men for the, <laughs> for the first <laughs> attack. Like, oh, I'm sorry we didn't bring enough. And yet you see this massive armada coming across. Is it that they have more resources than we think, or are they being profligate with what they have? I think it's not either of those. I think it's that the scale of Jaburo is so enormous that even that fleet of Gao is not enough to attack it directly, which is why these two episodes, both of them feature Shar and his team trying to infiltrate and do damage inside Jaburo while the defenders are distracted by this fleet of Gao. Let me comment on that I, because because I think Char never intended it to be a, a massive attack. Mm-hmm. It was always intended to be kind of a command under a raid um, with two purposes. One, to destroy a significant storage of Gundams, but more importantly, they've pinpointed mm-hmm. two entrances to, to the location. Mm-hmm. 
And I think more importantly than either of those for Shar is his opportunity to finally get the white base. Exactly. So it it was um, it was a very interesting episode, and and I think the way it ends, um, you know, with Shar jumping into the water mm-hmm. and, and disappearing mm-hmm. uh, for a little while. Uh, <laughs> I'll get you next time, Gundam. <laughs> What about the emotional aspects of the uh, of the episode? I mean, oh, there's so many, and they go into so many different directions. Yeah, the the award of the uh, the new ranks, and so uh, let's talk about how the white base relates to Federation Command. This is really some of their first official time. They were in the repair dock of the previous episodes very briefly, and then had to move on very quickly. They're all given official ranks, and isn't it interesting the hierarchy that that enforces on the group? Bright is in charge, of course. Bright has always been in charge. Bright is officially in charge now. Mirai is now officially a second in command. Mirai holds a rank higher than Bright had at the beginning of the series. Mm. Sela is higher ranked than Amuro. Amuro is higher ranked than Hayato or Kai. Mm-hmm. Right. To me, it reinforces two things. You know, it reinforced the power that the Federation still has over them. You know, granted, this is a, a, a bunch of rogue kids, you know, who like to <laughs> protect the world on their own. But yet, in this episode, we see how adults still exert a tremendous amount of influence and power over them. Mm-hmm. Unjustifiably so. But there it is. And I think we see pushback and resistance to that. You mentioned uh, Amuro's reaction when they announced that all of their comrades who died in combat have been given two rank promotions, Mm -hmm. including Ryu, including some of the other uh, members of the white base crew. Great challenge to authority initially. Very courageous in a Mm -hmm. Japanese uh, society. But then to go and not allow himself to be slapped the first time... (laughs) And then even more significant, to allow to himself get to get the slapped the second time. It was a great moment. It was. I don't think he allowed himself to get slapped the second time. I thought he was just so like taken aback by the <laughs> officer's reaction. He got caught by surprise. I think you've got a bunch of young people who, with very few exceptions, constantly resent authority. <laughs> yes. And so it would never even have occurred to him that he's supposed to stand there and get slapped. That Like, I rank higher than you, and if I want to hit you, you're supposed to let me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet on a similar note, they submit themselves to what we can anticipate were incredibly uncomfortable and perhaps painful medical tests mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. analyses and God only knows what else, right? You know, the, the other aspect that I think it's worth mentioning is this this gender antipathy that occurs um, between the senior leadership and the group of primary characters. But in general, you know, there is this this disconnect between the authority, which mm-hmm. which is always represented as the adult males, mostly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we finally get a Federation officer who's a woman and not Matilda, and she runs the daycare. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yes. It's, yep. uh, <laughs> Which begs the question why they had her at the uh, rank award ceremony in the first place. Yeah. Because they're all children and <laughs> <laughs> they, need, they needed the daycare minder there. Like. <laughs> 
in the slapping scene, that officer is portrayed very comically. They make him look yeah. ridiculous. Yes. Now we're back to slapstick. Yeah. When the snake gets startled and S- so bolts, much so that it's it spots it fly leaves off. its spots behind. <laughs> we, we don't see that in Gundam very often. No. We haven't seen that since the Zeon soldier butt scooted his way down his goof yeah. back in some some episode. <laughs> that actually it felt very Disney to me. It did. That yeah. made me think of the Jungle Book. <laughs> Comical injection. Though there are a few there are a few episodes and more upcoming where where that is infused, you know, in small doses. I think it helps to make the tragedy all the keener that you have that bit of comic relief there. It's not it's not so unrelentingly awful that you get inured to it, numb to it. Right. Those little moments of laughter make it easier to feel something later. Juxtapose it with the scene at the beginning where they're consoling their mm. their mm-hmm. mate right. on the loss of a friend and uh, he's inconsolable. Yeah. In fact, that scene drags on just a little bit longer than you would expect it to. Mm. And I think it's for emotional effect. And it's quite powerful. Right. Of course, that's a that's a repeat of a bit from a previous episode as a sort of like last time on. Mm. And what they choose to show us is quite significant there because it's not really Kai mourning. It's everybody, everybody watching else. Kai mourning. Mm. And then Fra looks at Amuro watching Kai. Mm-hmm. And we get a long shot of Fra looking at Amuro looking at Kai. And when we do see Kai again, it's everyone else is in awe of the butterflies and he can't even enjoy that. And I think Sela looks over at him uh, concerned. <laughs> and as the final part of how the white base relates to command, we see several admirals or other high ups decide that the white base is a nuisance that the white base is always going to be a target, that Xeon will always come after that, and that maybe the best use of the white base is as a decoy. Yeah. A very dangerous <laughs> job. You know, there was an expression, uh, old expression about uh, throwing young people at the cannons of war. Yeah. Something about how wars are started by old men and then exactly. fought by young men. Exactly. And it's uh, that that's the way that it struck me. You know, you see these... Uh, these older men who had no faith or, or indeed are incapable of valuing the sacrifice these people have made. And so they discount, you know, the value. We'll use it as a decoy. You know, it's just a means to get them out of the way so that they can uh, have maximum impact on their big offensive. And these two generals that we meet here are a good contrast for General Revel. Contrast and compare, really, because we met General Revel just a few episodes ago. He's a very different sort of officer. He's always leading from the front lines. He's not safe at Jaburo. Mm-hmm. Even before the big offensive at Odessa, we know he was sending support to the white base when no one else would. Right. Mm-hmm. And they made a point in those episodes of how disconnected from reality the central command at Jaburo was, mm-hmm. but not Revel. And in the episode in Ireland, Revel, he's in this house and he's talking about how a general has to lead from the front. Clearly a very different sort of commander. But also he had no qualms about using the white base for exactly the same purpose during the Odessa operation. I'd be interested to hear from you guys. What did you think of the wedding scene? Ooh. So I could have stood up and cheered for Woody. <laughs> Woody is the best. I have in my notes, Woody is the best. 
<laughs> well, because we get a real talk moment, right? Amaro finds out Matilda was engaged. He didn't know that. He finds out they'd been planning on marrying. I found Amaro's picture of the wedding comical because I feel like obviously Matilda would also have been in her uniform instead of in a white dress and veil. And <laughs> Maybe Woody would have been wearing the dress. Who knows? See, but- that's the reason I asked is because in my mind, what we saw is an image of what the kid thinks mm-hmm. the wedding would have been. Of course. It doesn't look real. Well, and as it Possible, zooms in right? on Matilda, she blocks out Woody because mm-hmm. Amaro had a crush on her. He's not really imagining Woody there. <laughs> He's <Right>. imagining <laughs> Matilda as a bride. And all the white base crew ranged around and the kids as like flower throwers. It was one of those uh, moments, in, which in Gundam they do quite often, that, that hits out of place. It breaks the transition of the storyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it does so to great effect because it moves you emotionally mm-hmm. to a different place. It was very well done and it's done twice in this episode. I have this theory that the emotion Gundam is always trying to make you feel most powerfully is discomfort. Mm -hmm. More than anything else, you're not supposed to be comfortable when you're watching it. So every little thing like that that disrupts you is there to keep you uncomfortable. And then because he's 15 and thinks that everything is his fault, Amaro apologizes to Woody and Woody almost bolts up <laughs> from his chair. I thought Woody was going to slap him. I really thought Woody was going to slap him. But it's in character. I mean, a young man facing a superior who they respect will always apologize. And of course, the right answer from a caring and loving superior is you just need to do your duty. Be sure that you never leave anything in the tank. But I think there's also an element of Amaro really does take too much personal responsibility. He really does try to do too much himself. He really does feel like the only one who can save us all. It's like that mine scene when he's destroyed mine 102 and he thinks briefly that he's like destroyed the entire Xenon mining operation and won the (laughs) war by himself. There's an arrogance in Well, but but that's I think that's by design in the show. Mm -hmm. Okay, think think of him as the sun, and everything else revolves around. (laughs) I mean, he certainly thinks of himself as the sun. He does think of himself that way. The sun in two senses. It works both ways. What I did not see was the the sensei in Woody. Hmm. He's not a mentor. Yeah, he's not a mentor, and, and his leadership falls a little bit. I, I failed to see at the end of the episode whether he is um, essentially committing suicide. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an intelligent man. Mm-hmm. He knows what he's going up against. And he's in a weekly hovercraft facing the uh, a red uh, mecha. It was a surprise. I didn't think we would lose the character mm-hmm. in this episode. So, so that was a bit of a surprise. But I struggle in my mind. You know, is he... Is he a samurai giving the best for his country? I don't think so. Is he uh, aggrieved by the loss of his beloved and so wants to end it? I think so. And I have a, I have a theory for this. Ah. At the beginning, when we first meet Woody, there's a question about, oh, aren't you working too hard? Like, shouldn't you rest or something like that? And mm-hmm. he's, he says no. And he's pushing himself harder than any of the officers who work for him. He makes a big point about taking care of the white base, protecting the white base. Matilda loved this white base. Matilda died for the white base. Yeah. Yes, he actually says that. I expected him in that scene to say, I can't do less. What he ended up saying is, I'm going to protect it too. But like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I think that was him saying he was willing to die for it. And then um, he calls it, 
He doesn't say the white base. He says our white base. Yeah. And I don't think he meant the Federation our. I think he meant Matilda and my white base. Yeah. He, he attaches personal ownership to it. He, he does several times, in fact, with his comments to, uh, to the boy yeah. as well. And if he is working himself to distraction, not sleeping, doing all of this to avoid the grief, probably his judgment is impaired. Fair point. He also dies in basically the same way that Matilda yeah, died. I it's, noticed that too. The scene is almost identical. Mm. A mobile suit grabs the cockpit of the ship he's in, crushing it and everyone inside. That has to have been intentional. Absolutely. Well, and we have what the characters have to say about it after the fact, because they're talking about the battle afterwards on the bridge of the white base. And Mirai puts it very eloquently when she says, men feel things so strongly, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Which, fantastic line from Mirai. Obviously, Mirai gets all the best lines and the best faces. I liked Hayato's response, where he just sort of goes, "Uh, I guess. (laughs) Well, Sela asks him directly. Sela asks Hayato. She's like, do they? And he's like, uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> what do you feel so strongly, Hayato? <laughs> There's no answer to it. I, I wonder if it was a, a coy comment, really intended to elicit no response, essentially pointing out a criticism that perhaps the men were not demonstrating as much emotion following the events as the women had. I think it's actually the opposite. I think oh, yeah. it's that the men in the show have been much more emotional than the women. Yeah. <laughs> how many how many collapses has Amuro had? Well, and then Bright Kai... had one. Kai and Hayato both abandoned ship once. Right. None of... Sela does something very foolish and dangerous, but she doesn't actually desert. Uh, Mirai and Frabo have never been like, we're done. Nobody appreciates us enough. <laughs> we're leaving. <laughs> Interesting that you would say that the the men showed a lot more emotion. I mean, outside of the the two references, the one at the very beginning, and then of course Woody doing his thing, uh, I, I didn't see that much. Not in this episode. I yeah. think in previous episodes, if you look back over the course of the arc of the show, the show so far, yes, I think we generally see more emotion more strong emotion out of the men mm-hmm. or or strong responses to their feelings, I guess I should say. How does that come about from the cadre of writers and animators <laughs> who put this together? I mean, it was the late 70s. Exactly, exactly. And do we, do we have an idea what the makeup of those teams was? I mean, from a gender point of view? It would have been almost exclusively male. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. I mean, that, that explains some of it. You know, the storylines for the females are not as complex complex as as the male the mirrorize is shaping up to be quite interesting <laughs> and Sela definitely has a classic heroic mold the princess in hiding and her brother on the other side who we now know will lie oh Sela lies all the time <laughs> so badly she's really she's really badly <laughs> yes whoever she's lying to knows she's lying and they just sort of go with it they respect her privacy <laughs> but why though <laughs> It's well, a fair the, question. The, the question is, she never gets challenged. Mm-hmm. You know, so is there a recognition that she's hiding something which is hinted at? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or do they just don't see it or, or don't care? So in the episode, there is that confrontation or awareness of Char and, and Salem. Mm-hmm. Um, that beautiful shot where it pans slowly up and it's the two of right. them. He's like standing on the rocks over her. And the screen is colored in that light blue. And it was not clear to me if they were addressing each other directly, mm-hmm. if they were listening to each other directly, or if what we're seeing and hearing is their thoughts on on seeing each other. 
I thought most of that was their thoughts. Mm. The scene opens, that part of the scene at least begins with him saying her name. He says Artesia, mm. but he doesn't like announce it. He says it sort of like sotto voce. But she has this sudden moment of awareness and she turns around and there he is. It's more of an awareness of each other than than any kind of a dialogue. And a deep sense of disbelief on both sides that she can't believe a brother of hers would be in the Xeon army. And he can't believe his sister would join any army at all. <laughs> they sort of can't believe they're looking at each other. <laughs> I mean, he's disguised by the mask, but she's disguised just as much by the military uniform. I think she's a little bit angered. I mean, there is a little bit of this sad anger, you know, bubbling in her. You know, how could you? How could you? Mm -hmm. We've had hints that the Zabi family did something awful to their family. The Zabi family is the reason they're apart. And so for him to be fighting for Zeon. Yeah. Right. That's the ultimate. Betrayal. I think we continue to see a lot of great character development from Kai. <laughs> I love Kai. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is this is the continuation of that accelerated character development for Kai. Kai is following the same path as Amaro, just a little bit faster. So Amaro lost Matilda. Kai lost Miharu. He mourns, and now he's in his revenge mode. Yep. Which is a huge admission on his part about how much he cares. Mm-hmm. So old Kai would have tried to pretend he didn't care. He's very openly mourning. He's encouraging himself. I have to keep going. We later see his interactions with the orphans where he openly admits that he wants them around. He's one of the most vocal talking about why the orphans should stay with them. He does a couple of times through these episodes try to sort of play off his feelings nonchalantly. During the battle, he's there in the gun cannon and they're waiting. They're defending this entrance. They're waiting for Zeon to come and they don't even know that Zeon is ever going to come. And Kai, they're like, I need them to come. I need them to be here so that I can do something about Miharu. this, all of this emotion that as a man, I'm feeling so strongly right now. Yeah, it, that is that's a that's a good point. I like that. We also get a bit more background on Mirai. Yeah, real significant. We knew her family was famous. That's all we knew about her before we came into this episode. But now we know her father was a Federation politician. And he's dead. He's dead. That his death is maybe the reason she went to side seven. And that she has a fiance. Right. Uh, she describes him almost as a draft dodger. <laughs> that he went out there to stay away from the war. Could not be more different from Bright. <laughs> no. Bright is noticeably peeved. Bright does not try to hide it But you know, all. not a word. I mean, all of his response to this new knowledge about her past boyfriend is emitted through images. There's some fantastic animation yeah. uh, over a period of a couple of minutes where we see the gamut of emotions <laughs> that he goes through yeah. without a single word being spoken. It's quite good. We've talked before about how when it comes to these moments of interpersonal drama, Tomino likes to take a very Ozu-like approach and be very hands-off and very subtle with mm -hmm. the characterization. I thought what was really interesting about that is very, very subtle. But this is our confirmation that Bright and Mirai have a relationship. They don't just like each other. They are together. <laughs> right. Because she says, 
you know, she's saying, oh, this is like, there's, there's really nothing there. I it wasn't was set up by, our set families. by families. I'll have to do something about that soon. And Bright, Bright. says, yep. <laughs> yeah, you will. <laughs> she goes out of her way to diminish the importance of it. And to explain. And, and he just uh, <laughs> lets his face do the talking. <laughs> uh, it's good. Though I think he's not mad at her. He's just mad. Yeah, he doesn't seem particularly angry with her. There's no like, how could, why couldn't, why didn't you tell me? How could you keep this from me? No, he, he understands. He just wants her to address the situation. It is upsetting. He's <laughs> saving that for future episodes. <laughs> uh, we also get some confirmation that there's something special about Amaro. Again. Yeah. When they go and they do their medical, Amaro is the only one who they check his brainwaves. And we know Matilda spoke about him to other people in the Federation. They think there's something special there. I keep waiting for more of an explanation. <laughs> I had Amuro and Esperism on my notes as well, both for that. Also, later when he's fighting the, hang on, let me go through all of the new mobile suits that were introduced in this episode. Zok? I think it's <laughs> the Zok. When he's fighting the Zok, which he's never seen before, it wasn't in the Federation's database. It's not one that they knew about in advance. They've got no technical information whatsoever on it. And he fires one shot and he hits the cockpit precisely, mm. even though it's not like it's not where Azaku's cockpit would have been. Uh -huh. And it's like it's pinpoint accurate. He hits the guy inside without knowing that he was there. Well, without having any normal way of knowing that he was there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And later in the second episode, when there's that whole scene of Shar and his ninja minions fleeing through the caves and Amaro's chasing after them. And he's basically shooting them and cutting them down in pitch darkness. Yeah. There's a sense of Amaro's extrasensory perceptions. The other thing I thought was very interesting about Amaro in these episodes is we see him change from the sort of reckless, go get him young guy to almost being the old hand veteran <laughs> yelling at everyone else, no, don't just charge in. Like, be careful. Like, he's yelling at all the pilots of the mass produced Gundams, the gyms, is that what mm -hmm. they call them? Yes. He's telling everyone to be cautious. He's telling everyone to be careful, to look out. He's giving them tips. He's giving them instructions. And suddenly, he's the veteran with his vast experience. <laughs> Nobody has few evolved this as uh, as a character, mm -hmm. as a leader, because he's seen so many of his good friends die. Yeah, he has not been the same since Ryu died. Exactly. The mistakes of everyone around him is making him more capable, more aware. And uh, and the mistakes that he's he's making as well. So uh, I th I think you do see in in him a little bit of of a leader in development. Um, slow because of the fact that he is a child. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a, a very young person. So uh, I, I think the the pace of of his growth is actually quite good. Mm -hmm. I don't, they don't rush it. No, not at all. I, I think it's been. I think it's been very good. It's rare that in a you know giant robots show from this era, our protagonist would not already start out a fully formed hero <laughs> with no development necessary, and then to actually take the time and show him stumbling, show him getting a little bit better, and then stumbling again. It's unusual. No, but he is he is the one character that ties everyone together. I mean, I made the reference earlier. You know, he's the son, and everyone mm -hmm. else revolves around. And um, and it's been it's been done very well so far. See how far they take it. We see a lot of really neat effects in these combats. 
Uh, I was especially struck by the slow motion of Char mm. when he first joins the combat. They cue it. They have the background go black. So it's just the mobile suit against a black background or Char's face against a black background. It's cued to the music, the battle jazz <laughs> that everybody loves. It has just started when the slow motion begins. And they show us the mobile suit getting into position and uh, a smile creep over Char's oh, face. It's the creepiest <laughs> smile. It's like half of his face. Only half of his face is smiling. So a very interesting ob observation on your part, because we see more use of transitional movement in the battles in this episode than in any of the other ones. You don't see the stagger effect mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that you've seen in previous episodes. And that, I think, mixed with the addition of color uh, for this particular set of battles was very good. I think Tom mentioned earlier there were several um, battles, especially where Char is running away, mm -hmm. that are dark and primarily black. Mm -hmm. And so you see the infusion of the, the light flashes and, uh, and brown, and that dark brown. And it's done with beautiful, beautiful effect and, and really more and better transition. Uh, in the movement than we've seen before. Though there are those very goofy moments when Char's mobile suit is just like running really quickly across the screen. <laughs> and they repeat this a bunch of times because we have to show Char being fast, right? <laughs> Which looks much cooler when it's in a vacuum or in mm -hmm. space because they just have the whichever mobile suit he's in kind of like like really fast <laughs> off to the side right. to dodge out of the way of something. But when he has to physically run <laughs> down a the corridor. And the Zagak is already kind of a like a derpy awkward suit and so seeing it just like hustling extra quick across the screen and, and to be fair you know the loops are still there mm -hmm. i mean but you know i i I've appreciated in some of your comments earlier in the earlier episodes about how funding became an issue, especially mm -hmm. the, the the first season. And so <laughs> you make do with what you have. And yeah. so the use of loops continues, but you can see it change from episode to episode. So uh, I can see that their financial uh, fortunes yeah. were uh, slightly improving <laughs> when you see, uh, you know, the, the animation improved the way that it has. And this is, um, you know, this is more than 20 episodes episodes in more than halfway through the show. Mm -hmm. At this point, for any other show, the animation quality would be declining precipitously. That's They'd right. be cutting down the team. Mm -hmm. No one would still be caring about it. <laughs> yep. And yet we get real moments of beauty. Really, I think the average animation quality is improving. Especially over the first <laughs> three to four episodes. Mm -hmm. All right. No, it's, it was quite evident in this in this episode. I really liked it. I, I really enjoyed it. Both, both of them. All right, I think now we are ready to talk about the orphans, Kika and cats and let's. Yeah, I keep trying to figure out if there are puns for Kika and let's because Katz's name is actually Katsu. Oh, really? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Favorite lunch. <laughs> orphans played a very important part, uh, I think, in the development of the, the storyline because they're a very significant part of how Japanese society looks at family and outcasts. I believe the term for orphan is uh, minoshiko. I, I think it is, um, which basically means outcast. 
So the term orphan, you know, or absent of parent or mother is an outcast. And that's how I view this group of young travelers. You know, they are they are outcast. Yeah, we've talked before about how this is a crew of orphans. We've only touched on it briefly in the past. But, you know, now that we know that Mirai's dad is dead, there are I don't think there are any characters on the white face except Amuro who we can be certain that their parents are alive. But if we take it a little bit further and and focus on just the three mm-hmm. very young mm-hmm. recognized orphans by everyone, it's also salient in the way that they're presented to us in that they each have a little bit of a psychological difference. Mm-hmm. Do you know, they, they can't control their emotions or they're a little bit violent mm-hmm. or... Mm-hmm. And I think they represent what the writers viewed the orphan community to be in, in Japan. Hmm. Uh, 90% of, of the Japanese orphans in at the time that the Gundam was written were uh, in stage institutions. Um, what percentage was that again? At 90%. Wow. So 90%. Over 30,000 orphans in Japan. It's worth noting, uh, Japan does not have much of a foster care system. Uh, Fabulous Kids point. wind up in orphan all the time. Yes. Uh, it used to be relatively common for people to adopt from an orphanage if they couldn't have children of their own, but it's become less and less common in the post-war period. After the US, Japan has the second highest number of adoptions, but almost all of those adoptions, I think 95 to 99% of those adoptions are adoptions by uh, elderly people of adult men. To carry on a family name rather than by of children to raise. And it made me think about is is the writers uh, and the animators trying to make a, uh, a social statement that will resonate with the public, or are they perhaps sharing some personal memories? Because it's it's uh, it was quite interesting. We've noted before many of the animators are of an age that they would have been young children. They would have been the age of Kika and Cats and Let's at the end of the war. Well, the directors certainly would have. Many of the animators are a little younger, but the writers and the directors, the high level people, yeah. the character designers, they would have been old enough to have been the age of those orphans during the war. I was very struck by how they are contrasted with the other kids. <laughs> because when we see them get there, we know that they've they've seen some things. They have been through some things. But they're rambunctious, they're playing on the slide, they're drinking juice and eating ice cream and having a good time. And the other kids there almost seem to resent it, or at least the one kid who speaks to them, who I've been thinking of as Toddler Kai. Mini <laughs> 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 but, you know, and the passivity, to, to me, that speaks to the social statement that the writers are trying to make. The system does not work. The system is creating children that are passive, unemotional, unattached, uncommitted. And here we have this three outcasts, this right. three uh, rebels, if you will. And yet, though they have been through hell getting here, they're full of life and they're, they're full, full of, of energy. Yeah. And they're full of love for each other. Mm-hmm. And you don't see that in the children in the system. Well, because these kids, our three orphans, they don't have their parents. They have a family. Mm-hmm. The kids in the institution, 
even the ones who have parents, because from what Mr. Minimnia says, <laughs> it sounds, I got the impression his parents are alive. They're in Jaburo. They're just very busy. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're in the space fleet somewhere. Like, but, the, but they're absent. Yeah. They're, or even if they're not absent, they don't have time to take care of him. Mm-hmm. So they're emotionally absent. I mean, the matron is barely there, is there by herself, loses three kids immediately. Mostly they're being taken care of by a robot. Right. What care is being offered is not particularly good. And I want to make sure everyone understands I'm not criticizing that robot. (laughs) I think that robot was doing the best it possibly could for those kids. That robot really cared about them. Yes, indeed. Well, and the, and the matron describes the kids as the future of the Federation, which feels very ominous right? in this context. Uh, it feels like there are there are future soldiers. Yeah. Which Amuro counters with. They might live to see a future that doesn't have a Federation or Zeon. And wouldn't that be better? She doesn't have a response to that. No. She can't imagine that future. As we've seen with other characters who get sort of like a parallel development to Amuro, but after the fact, the orphans get their very own Time Be Still episode. Yes, that was so similar. When they're removing the bombs from all the Gundams, that is exactly like when Amuro is having to run around removing bombs. From the Gundam. <laughs> Even when they load the bombs into a truck and well, drive the truck. They they remember. They, they were there. From you. They- <laughs> we learned it from you. We see already this parallel development, even for the very young kids that we might not have expected. Kai is very nice to them. I was surprised. Oh, he's so nice he's to them. So, <laughs> just like very encouraging when he pulls them onto the car so they're away from the bombs. And then he's sort of the most vocal in giving the matron basically the speech that you were giving earlier when you said, you know, they have been through a lot, but they can look it in the face and they, you know, they're here with us and they have us. And so while I found this episode to be the most polished storyline in a while, I thought it, it held together really well. Uh, I did have one scene that I found completely incongruous. I'm trying to figure out how to put it in place. And that is when the commander group gags and tapes up and ties down the three kids. That was startling. Yeah. Because they just planted a whole bunch of bombs. And now they've gagged the kids right there next right. to the Gundam. If you're a set of commandos and you're going to take the time to tie them down, you take them with you. Yeah. And after all, they're a resource. Right. They could be so, hostages. Or grow up to be Zeon soldiers. Precisely. That, that's why for me, it, I'm, I'm trying to make it work. And it, it does provide some comical relief. Because, you know, the, the little girl pulling her sock off. <laughs> and so so it, it does provide some comic relief, but uh, but it, it didn't work. It's the only bit. The rest of it, I thought, was quite good. Yeah, I think we have to chalk that one up to, if it didn't happen that way, there wouldn't be a story. <laughs> yeah. It does also give us an opportunity to see how resourceful the kids are, where Kika uses her toes to get somebody's gag off, and then he uses his teeth to untie somebody's ropes. <laughs> that was a good point, but then I would have placed that in the back of a Xeon truck or... A- uh, no, I would have done it before they place the bombs, mm-hmm. you know, before they do all of that. Mm-hmm. And and maybe it's outside the hangar or something like that. But because you're right, it does provide some, some uh, capability context as to what the children are able to do. For... A bunch of episodes now, <laughs> really since the beginning. While the Federation has called it the White Face, Zeon has been referring to this particular ship as the Trojan Horse, in English at least. And that's a easy enough thing to understand. It kind of is shaped like a horse and 
What are you going to call it? Mystery Ship X? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to call it Mystery Ship X from now on. Never mind, this segment is over. But actually, though, this is the first moment where that name starts to feel like it might have some significance in the story rather than just being a reference visually. Yes, it does. Jaburo is the impenetrable fortress. The earth has fallen and Jaburo remains undefeated. Impenetrable. Like that Troy. Was the word. Yeah. It's it is good. the fortress that will not fall. That's right. And part of the reason it won't fall is because Zeon doesn't know where the entrances are. <laughs> they know the general vicinity. It's somewhere underneath the Amazon. But how do you get in? And it's the white base. It's the Trojan horse that opens the door for Zeon. Yeah, I th- I think that parallel works quite well, and and I I'm, think I'm it, glad you do because you suggested it. <laughs> I'm just taking credit for it now. It's probably a precursor to to future references, but you know the idea that you have a group of commandos that slip inside a major fortress that's been impenetrable until now uh, fits really well, and you know that it is initially a failed mission also works. So it, it'll be interesting to see uh, where they take it from here. I did not see the parallels, though, for uh, taking it beyond and and looking at a, an Achilles. No. Uh, I don't think Shar is a very good Odysseus. He's, <laughs> he's clever and he's courageous, but not in that mm-hmm. tricky, deceitful way that Odysseus was. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the Helen? Well, there might be a Helen there, but... Not, Not yet. Sure. No. Well, maybe the Gundam is Helen. <laughs> <laughs> no, so much for the Trojan horse. But I, I do believe that uh, if we continue to hear um, the Zion troops referred to it as the Trojan horse. Zion. Although uh, Zion was one of the original uh, ways of transliterating that over in English. Really? Yeah. In in Japanese, it's like Gion. Oh, G. And in a lot of the early fan subs, it was translated to Zion. And then in the official translations, Sunrise and Tomino were like, that is not <laughs> That's an not association be okay. <laughs> that we want. Well, completely Make it something else, which is how we got, which is how we got Zion. <laughs> but I didn't know that it used to be transliterated that way. That's interesting. Very good. But yeah, as you were saying, if they continue to call it the Trojan horse, that does beg the question, what's the association? Absolutely. Also, when I thought back a couple of episodes, you have all this plants, you have all this spice associated with, you know, the white base, this Trojan horse, you know, so this Trojan horse is the means by which they infiltrate. Although you pointed out the crew of the white base, they're not really part of the Federation. Maybe they are the infiltrating force. All of these civilians with their unmilitary attitudes who have infiltrated <laughs> the Federation forces. We shall see. Time and maturity. We'll see. Um, I do want to point out that in these two episodes, Shars. The wingmen get a lot more disposable. <laughs> yes, they do. Oh, yeah. We get two of them who, I mean, I'm glad they got named because otherwise they, they go out before the drop is even finished. On new platforms that are supposedly more capable. Yes. And then when he goes in with a whole team uh, of commandos, they all get killed. And in both of these, there's a there's a parallel because when they're doing that drop initially, the, the para drop with the Zagox. 
the first guy to get killed, it happens because Shar dodges out of the way and the blast that was aimed at Shar hits the guy behind him. <laughs> and then later when Shar's trying to escape and he's got all the commandos with him, they're all running along behind him. Right. And they're just they are getting cut down one after Decimated. another yeah. and just slightly slowing Amaro down just enough for Shar to get away. They're not just dying under Shar's command. They're dying for Shar, and he does not care. I think we're seeing more and more of that from Shar as he gets more fixated on the Gundam. Because I think in, our, in the earliest episodes, he tells them not to take too many risks. He tells them to be careful. He seems legitimately sad when his men die uh, in the early operations against both Side 7 and the Gundam and the White Base. At this point, his attitude when the the first batch of aquatic mobile suits go against Amaro and get taken out is like, oh, it was necessary losses. Like, of course they got destroyed. I knew that would happen. <laughs> I sent them out anyway. <laughs> it is my fate to destroy the Gundam with my own two hands. No one else can do it. And so he has become very... Uh, blase <laughs> about the losses that he's requiring. He is obsessed with destroying the Gundam and anything, any loss is worth it. Interesting. Interesting. I, that, that's a good point. I, there is a loss of emotion in that character mm -hmm. that was not there originally. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. But do you think that's what drives him? I mean, that that is his sole purpose? I think he, I don't think it's his sole purpose, but I think it's overwhelming him right now. I do wonder, though. I, I find myself constantly wondering, what is his endgame? Because, okay, he took out Garma, and somehow either Kaiselia knows and doesn't care or doesn't think that he did it. So that's one zombie down. But there's four still left that we know of. And how does his sort of desire to take on the Gundam and to, to win and to be the best how does that, if it does, come together at all with his mission for revenge? You don't see any joy of leadership in its own sense. You don't see any ambition for power. Not evident. So, yeah, maybe it is just a pure obsession. He is so used to thinking of himself as the best mobile suit pilot in existence mm -hmm. that he can't stand to be bested by anyone. Could be. And more than that, I think, I mean, he wants to destroy the Gundam. I think he gets something out of fighting it. I think there's a satisfaction he gets from fighting the Gundam well, that a, he doesn't get from anything else. It's a trope of a sort. I feel like I've seen it in movies and books and stuff, but the the enemy that you respect, right? The rival. It's almost a joy to fight them because they're so good and they challenge you and mm -hmm. <laughs> they push you constantly to be better. So Char is Masala to uh, Ben-Hur. More or less. <laughs> In the talkback, I asked Ron, my dad, <laughs> whether he thought there was any aesthetic influence of robots in Western cinema evident in Gundam. I'm actually curious, Dad, if you feel in the design of some of the new mobile suits we see, particularly on the Xeon side, mm -hmm. uh, an influence from Western sci-fi film? Because I can't tell what what it is that it's making me think of, but I find myself thinking about like some of them look like robots maybe from Flash Gordon or from some other older sci-fi. Something about the shape and the sort of like gooseneck looking arms. And yeah, the well, I, I get you. It... Um 
So the short answer is is no. Okay. Most of the robot and mechanical animation uh, in film, both Western and Eastern film, uh, has its roots in Asian animation. Okay. First from manga and anime, and later films like Godzilla series and and others. In researching this point, uh, he wound up with a great brief history of robots in Western cinema. So here is that research. The first Western film. To feature an autonomous robot uh, that I can think of is the Master Mystery. Uh, this is a almost four-hour-long film released as a 15-episode serial back in 1919, though it was probably filmed the year before. Um, of note, it's Harry Houdini's first feature film. So if you've never seen Harry Houdini in live footage, I recommend it. But most critics will consider Fritz Lang's film from 1927. Metropolis as the first truly significant, first full-feature movie to have a robot as a significant character. After that, in my mind, it's not until 1951, with The Day the Earth Stood Still, that director Robert Wise enthralls us with Gort. That's the name of the robot, that really tall robot. This was loosely based on Harry Bates' story from uh, Farewell to the Master, which is a, a short story from the 40s. What came next is a small number of low-budget, very poor imitations. And it's really not until 1956 that we see another significant robot film, Robbie the Robot. Remember him? Uh, that's from Fred Wilcox's uh, Forbidden Planet. Creatures, aliens, and monsters abound in the ensuing years. Um, but to my mind, it's not until 1970s, really, with films like Silent Running in 1972, uh, Bruce Dern in Douglas Trumbull's feature, later Westworld, uh, where uh, Michael Crichton, the writer-turned-director, shows us what the entertainment of the future might be like. The golden years of robot films must be the 80s. Start in 1982 with uh, Ridley Scott's uh, Blade Runner, one of my all-time favorite films. Um, follow that with uh, 1984, James Cameron's uh, The Terminator. Who can forget that? Uh, or 1987, uh, Paul Verhoeven's uh, Robocop. These were real groundbreaking films, developing new techniques in filming, uh, but also in storytelling. Uh, and these have changed the way that we see and interact with artificial intelligence uh, from that moment on. Ouch. I just put my foot in my mouth, didn't I? I know, I know, I know. I know some of your listeners are going to point out that there was a Transformers movie back in, uh, I think it was 85, Nelson Shin's uh, epic. But really, I have to agree with Leonard Maltin, the film critic who call the picture a real bomb, and, and I quote literally, little more than an obnoxious feature-length toy commercial, end quote. Come on, guys, it was awful, and remains in my memory bank only because of the trivial pursuit value of knowing that it was Orson Welles' last film, with credits. The rest, um, they say, is history. I believe after 2000, East and West share and collaborate in, in new ways uh, and importantly begin to share distribution rights. I, I leave out notables like Star Trek and Star Wars because truly we have no time to get into them. L let me just close by saying that with the evolution of technology and capability, 
The most significant event in the past few years has to have been the growth of virtual reality and its migration from the office to the entertainment arena. I believe it won't be long before the next generation of Gundam releases has us piloting our own mobile suits uh, and through it creating our own unique and evolving storylines with the extensive use of virtual reality. We recorded this separately, so I would just like to say Tom strongly disagrees with Ron about the animated Transformers movie. It is a masterpiece. You got the <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one of these days, if the Patreon goes really well, I can convince Nina that we need to do a special bonus episode all about the 1986 animated Transformers movie. What now? <laughs> I want to note also, Ron mentioned Robbie the Robot back in the 1950s. And how after that, there was a flood of low budget, uh, fairly low quality robot movies. A lot of the reason for that is that MGM, the studio behind Forbidden Planet, spent an astronomical amount of money building the Robbie the Robot suit. We're talking at the time, a reported cost of 125,000 US dollars. What? Equivalent now to more than a million. And about 7% of the total budget of the movie was spent on that robot suit. Wow. Yeah. So it was a very good, very high quality robot suit. But then after they made Forbidden Planet, they just had the suit sitting around. And any MGM movie that wanted to use it could just do that. <laughs> Does your movie have a robot in it? No? Why not? We have the suit. Exactly. We spent a million dollars. Well, <laughs> we spent the modern equivalent of a million dollars building this thing. And it's just sitting in storage. Use the robot suit. We've talked many times before about orphans in this series. Not just Kika, Katz, and Letts, but a lot of the rest of the White Base crew. This theme got pulled into the foreground again in the second of these two episodes, A Wish for War Orphans, so I want to expand a bit on orphans, orphanages, and daycare in Japan. Starting with, and keep this in mind <laughs> through this whole research piece, are the kids in the childcare center in Jaburo orphans? One boy who talks to our three white base orphans says he's waiting for his parents to return, but <laughs> return from where? A job on the base? A mission halfway across the world or even in space? Or is he in denial or being lied to? Unsurprisingly, there were a great many Japanese orphans after World War II. One notable group were the children of Japanese colonists in China. Thousands of colonists were left behind when Manchuria was evacuated as the Russian army was closing in. Even after the war, these orphans were largely abandoned by their government. The first repatriation wasn't until 1953. There is very little support available for war orphans who repatriate, and over 2,000 of them have sued the government demanding better services. When we say war orphans here, are these specifically the children of people who were killed during the war? Or are these also including children who were left behind by fleeing living parents? Both. <laughs> A specific article I read, which I will link to, uh, talked about the case of a young woman who was 13 or 14 when the war was going on, and her parents had died previously of causes unrelated to the war, but she was an orphan, left without anyone to look after her, uh, and then when the war started to turn against Japan, you know, first attempted to get to some of the last boats leaving Manchuria was not able to do so, and was pretty much entirely dependent on Chinese families in the countryside who were willing to look after her, some of whom were very kind and some of whom not so much. Mm. Uh, wound up married to a Chinese man, 
felt deeply betrayed by her government, especially once she heard about Japanese atrocities in the war, because obviously because of propaganda and her age at the time of the war, she wouldn't have known anything about that. And then she hears about the Nanjing massacre. She hears about the you know experimentation of bioweapons and chemical weapons on prisoners of war. Uh, and she's thinking about all the horrible things she endured in the aftermath of the war, including being attacked by local Chinese people. And she's like, well, no wonder they hated us. <laughs> uh, and there is a lot of, I think that's part of why so many of these particular war orphans sue the government. There's this sense that we are also victims of the fact that the government decided to go to war. Mm -hmm. It's eerie to think that at 13 or 14, as a girl, she's an orphan with no one to take care of her who gets abandoned in a foreign country. But if she had been a boy, she probably would have been in the army. <sighs> On the home islands, in the chaos of the immediate post-war period, it was difficult for anyone to get by. But children, left without parents or guardians, were especially vulnerable. Most were homeless, sleeping in train stations, begging and stealing to feed themselves. Rather than being pitied, these children were vilified, and a police crackdown in Tokyo led to more than 400 children, most of them between the ages of 7 and 10, being thrown in jail. The government ignored the problem until 1948, when an investigation found over 123,000 orphans living on the streets in Japan. Um. The number was likely much higher. Uh, this would hardly have been an easy population to count. Mm -hmm. They also excluded Okinawa. The only home islands that actually saw combat. The government proceeded to do nothing with this information. Uh, query whether Okinawa counts as a home island. Yeah, granted. But they considered it part of the home islands, but they did not include it in this count. Well, Japan has a long history of considering the Okinawan people to be Japanese, except when it would be inconvenient. Government policy was to place orphans with relatives, no matter how distant. Many of these distant relations forced the children out themselves which is what happens in Grave of the Fireflies, the movie that we've mentioned before about orphans <laughs> at the end of World War II. Yeah, so if you want to see a beautiful movie or ruin your day, or both at the same time, we recommend Grave of the Fireflies. The occupation forces were alarmed by the number of street children and told the government to do something, but didn't pay much attention to what was done. And what was done was more crackdowns and arrests. Eventually, some of these children managed to build safe, comfortable lives, but most kept their childhoods as street children an absolute secret. Nowadays, Japan has many more children in orphanages than in foster care. This is true in spite of very high adoption rates, because most adoptions in Japan are, as Tom mentioned earlier, of adult men by families who want to be sure their family name is carried on if they didn't have a son of their own, or who run a family business and are adopting the intended successor to the business. This happens even in very large family businesses, I found out. Businesses like Suzuki, Canon, and Kikoman. <laughs> uh, additionally, many children in orphanages are not technically orphans. They've been removed from their family due to abuse or neglect or have been abandoned by their parents due to poverty. There continues to be a great deal of stigma around being an orphan and not belonging to any family. And orphans are subject to all kinds of discrimination in their adult lives, including in housing, in the job market, in marriage. Bullying is very common in orphanages. And one adult who grew up in a childcare institution said that while they were never mistreated by the staff, they never felt loved or cared for. Daycare in Japan began in the late 1800s. Factories that wanted to employ women, cheaper labor, began to have on-site childcare facilities. As more and more women entered the workforce, available childcare expanded. 
This was especially true during the post-war period. Rapid industrialization meant there was great need for labor. Many countries solved this issue by accepting more immigrants, but Japan was adamantly against that particular solution. <laughs> Shocking. Q, finding ways for more women to participate in the labor force. At the same time, the standard of living that was considered normal increasingly required both parents working outside the home. Japan has a notoriously grueling work culture. Many office workers are expected to remain at work until late at night, as well as to work on Saturdays and sometimes even Sundays. In my reading about childcare in Japan, I found that many facilities offer extended hours that go as late as midnight. A child with two parents working in these kind of environments might barely see their parents during the work week, only spending time with them on Sundays. <laughs> It just occurred to me that that also imposes on the childcare workers the obligation to stay at work all day. Yep, I, I assume they do shifts, but still. Despite the huge need for childcare, a recent statistic I found was that there are 20,000 children on wait lists for spots at licensed daycare in Japan right now. <laughs> Facilities are plagued by low wages, high turnover, and understaffing. So given this history and these conditions, what are the writers trying to say here? <laughs> are the children in the childcare center in Jaburo war orphans or simply neglected by a system that demands total commitment from their parents without giving the children any meaningful way to engage with society? What really stood out to me in your discussion about orphans and orphanages in Japan was the stigma that gets attached to it. Mm -hmm. And then contrast that to the very sensitive, positive depictions of orphans in Gundam. Mm -hmm. Remembering that basically all of the characters are orphans and there's no sense in Gundam of that stigma. Mm -hmm. Instead, there's this feeling of this a little dysfunctional, but very loving extended family aboard the white base. It makes me wonder in the first place whether any of Gundam's creators were orphans. Certainly, it's easy to imagine how someone who was a child, even a child who wasn't an orphan, but a child during that era of police crackdowns could come to the conclusion that adults are the enemies of children. Well, and have a deep distrust of organizations, right? Mm -hmm. There were two other pieces that really struck me. One the description of, of not being mistreated, but of not feeling cared for. Mm -hmm. Which, when you see this room full of children with no adults and no one's engaging with anyone else, everyone is quiet and listless and there is no play and there is no teaching, they feel, quote unquote, safe, but neglected. And the white base orphans are precisely the opposite. They are not safe. An episode ago, they almost got blown up. But everyone is up in their business all the time. They are not neglected. They are loved and cared for. And and when the the Federation officer who runs the child care center is talking about, oh, the children are the future of the Federation, I felt this burst of anger <laughs> <laughs> because, and I think this is meant to comment on society at the time, oh, you'll care about them once they're adults and you can make them do something for you. But right now they're children and you can't make use of them and therefore they are shunted aside and ignored and neglected. Hey, this 1979 anime feels strangely relevant in 2019. The utter inadequacy of society when a bunch of kid parents are a better option. <laughs> A 
obviously there were countless sabotage operations throughout World War II, big and small, civilian and military. But one raid in particular feels like a suitable comparison to the attempted destruction of the mass-produced Gundam and this particular production facility. So I will be talking about Operation Gunnerside. The goal was to destroy a heavy water production facility at the Vemork hydroelectric plant in Norway. A previous mission to destroy the plant had failed. All the soldiers involved either killed in action or captured, tortured, and executed. To avoid the same fate, the men of Operation Gunnerside were given suicide capsules, and most of them thought of it as a suicide mission. The team weren't told why the mission was so important. All they knew was that the plant made heavy water, and that heavy water was important for Nazi weapons research. What is heavy water? Why was it needed? I'm not going to get into the chemistry here, because it will take a while to explain, <laughs> uh, but I will link a few articles that talk about it. Uh, suffice it to say, Nazi research into the development of nuclear weapons required vast amounts of heavy water. And while Allied research was using different methods, Allied researchers understood why the heavy water was necessary and knew that it was very important for the nuclear arms race. Vemork was the only plant in the world synthesizing heavy water at this time. And Leif Tronstad, the Norwegian chemistry professor who had designed and developed the heavy water production facility, was instrumental in the plan to destroy it. Tronstad had fought in the Battle of Norway, and after Norway lost, he went back to teaching, but also began working as part of the local resistance, <laughs> feeding intelligence to the Allies. After several months of passing intelligence, he realized the danger of Nazi access to the Vemork plant and escaped to Britain. Now, the plant was on a steep hillside with a ravine protecting access and only one heavily protected bridge. The surrounding area had minefields, searchlights, barbed wire fences, patrols. Tronstad warned the Allies that aerial bombardment probably wouldn't work. The most important part of the facility was in the basement, and the whole building was steel-reinforced cement and stone. Bombardment would kill a lot of people, but probably wouldn't destroy the plant's capacity to create heavy water. The saboteurs were trained by the uh, British SOE, Special Operations Executive, also known by the very dramatic name of the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. <laughs> the training was grueling, involving long periods of camping in the wilderness, mountain climbing, fording rivers, and being able to do all of that at night. The mission had been attempted previously by a group of British soldiers, as I mentioned, and had failed. This previous attempt had involved dozens of heavily armed soldiers coming in on military gliders, directly assaulting the front gates of the facility. The new plan was to parachute a small group of lightly armed expert skiers into the wilderness outside the facility, then use stealth to get in and destroy the heavy water production equipment. The advance team had parachuted in in October with the first mission, but the rest of the team didn't arrive until February. In the meantime, the advance team had to survive mostly on what they could hunt in horrible winter conditions, the same conditions that delayed the start of the mission until February. The ravine I mentioned earlier was thought impassable, but the Norwegian soldiers climbed down, crossed the half-frozen river at the bottom, and climbed back up, avoiding the bridge and the minefield. Climbed a 500-foot cliff at night in the middle of winter. <laughs> They were able to sneak past the sentries, find the heavy water production facility, set timed explosives, and escape, largely thanks to building maps and descriptions provided by Tronstad, who had wanted to join the mission on the ground, but was considered too valuable an intelligence asset to risk. No deaths, no shots fired. 
The group split up and got away skiing the 280 miles to neutral Sweden. Wow. <laughs> Uh, later attempts at aerial bombardment of the plant were totally ineffective. But when Nazi high command attempted to move the supplies of heavy water and the production equipment to Germany, Norwegian saboteurs sunk the transportation ferry, basically destroying <laughs> all of the production capacity and all the remaining heavy water. There is, of course, a lot of debate as to whether or not this attack is the thing that prevented the Nazis from developing an atomic bomb before the end of the war. The fact is we will never know. <laughs> But there is no debate that it did slow down their research for months, and that a group of individuals, most of whom had been civilians before the war, accomplished something incredible. This is the episode for us to talk about daring commando raids to take out key access infrastructure. Nina already talked about the raid to destroy a important heavy water plant, and now I get to tell you the story of the San Nazaire raid, also known as Operation Chariot. And there's actually another connection between these two that I hadn't known about until I listened to Nina just now, so I'll cover that in a second. You've probably heard of the Bismarck, the massive German super battleship, well, the Bismarck was sunk early in World War II after it was caught without adequate support and harried relentlessly for three days by just about every British ship and naval aircraft in the North Atlantic. In all, it took six battleships, two aircraft carriers, 13 cruisers, and 21 destroyers to bring down the Bismarck. But did you know that the Bismarck had a big sister? Displacing more than a thousand tons more than the Bismarck, the Tirpitz remains the largest and last battleship ever deployed by Germany. While the Bismarck was sinking off the coast of France, Tirpitz lurked in a Norwegian fjord, preparing to venture forth into the Atlantic, where it would do what the Bismarck had planned to do, raid the seas and stop the desperately needed convoys of war supplies and food that were keeping Britain in the war. A ship of that size needed an enormous port for repair and refit in between raids, and there was only one such facility that fit the bill, the Normandie dry dock in Saint-Nazaire, on the northern bank of the Loire River. If you're up on your French geography, you know that Saint-Nazaire, and therefore the Normandie dry docks in Saint-Nazaire, are confusingly not in Normandy, but are in fact on the west coast of France near Nantes. They're actually named for a famous and huge ocean liner called Normandie that had been built there. British military planners decided that if Saint-Nazaire's docks could somehow be knocked out of the war, then the Tirpitz would be forced to keep lurking for the rest of the war for fear of getting caught out in the open and Bismarcked. Bombing was still too rudimentary at this point, ships couldn't get close enough to bombard the port thanks to its shore defenses, and long-range missiles didn't exist yet, so the job was given to a new unit in the British armed forces, the commandos. And here's that other parallel, because part of the planning for this operation was assisted by the engineer who helped build the dry dock in the mm. first place. Under cover of darkness and flying false flags, the commando flotilla approached Saint-Nazaire on the morning of March 8, 1942. The flagship of their little fleet was the retrofitted destroyer HMS Campbelltown. And by retrofitted here, I mean that it had every non-essential bit removed to make room for more guns, more armor, more commandos, and 9,600 pounds of high explosives. Wow. Because you see, the plan was actually pretty simple. Commandos aboard the 18 smaller boats accompanying the Campbelltown would land and destroy as much of the facility as they could. But more importantly, they would sow chaos and confusion while the Campbelltown itself did the real damage, ramming the dry dock's gates at full speed. Then, 
Once the commandos had escaped aboard the same small boats that brought them in, the time-delayed detonators in the Campbelltown would set off its massive explosive payload. And things almost went according to plan. <laughs> Except that an aerial bombing raid intended to distract the Germans instead put them on high alert, and the approaching flotilla was spotted too early. Under withering fire, the smaller boats still managed to land some of their commandos, and those who made it to shore fought heroically. The Campbelltown did ram the gates and got itself well and truly stuck in there, but the boats meant to evacuate the commandos and the Navy crew who had sailed the destroyer were decimated. Thirteen of the eighteen boats were destroyed, and the remainder were driven off. The officer in charge of the commandos at this point declared, Well, chaps, we've missed the boat. We'll just have to walk home. And then they did their best to do just that, trying to break out of Saint-Nazaire and get out to open country. Five of them managed it, making it all the way to neutral Spain and catching a boat home. The rest fought until they ran out of ammunition and were captured. Of the 611 soldiers and sailors involved in the raid, around 170 were killed and more than 200 were taken prisoner. And when the appointed time for the time-delayed detonators to go off arrived, they didn't. Ugh. And when it was almost over, and the commandos were being interrogated, and the Germans were taunting them that it would take only a few weeks to repair the damage caused by the Campbelltown, 9,600 pounds of high explosives packed into the Campbelltown's bow, along with the Campbelltown, the dock gates, and 40 German high officers touring the wrecked <sighs> ship, just vanished in a flash and roar. Wow. Some of the commandos in the raid who were captured tell this story that they were being interrogated, that they were being taunted by the Germans, and it was right at that moment that the explosion happened. And the commander who's being interrogated just says, we're not so foolish as you think we are. <laughs> the damage to the docks would not be repaired until well after the war. And Tirpitz did, in fact, stay in its protective Norwegian fjords until 1944, when RAF bombers found and sunk the last great German battleship. Five months before U.S. bombers did the very same thing to the mighty Yamato in the Pacific. I almost told the story of Operation Chariot back in episode 1.20 when Hamon took the last of Rambaral's commando team to attack the White Base in order to divert attention from their cargo ship, the same cargo ship that was loaded down with explosives and set to ram the White Base. But it feels appropriate here too, with Shar leading a commando raid to try to knock out the Federation's most vital spaceship dock. Ever since Shar returns a few episodes back when General Revel stood in front of a projection of different Xeon mobile suit designs and practically announced that there was going to be a new mobile suit every week, there has been a new mobile suit every week. <laughs> By this point, Amro and crew have tussled with a bevy of different aquatic mobile suits. The Gog, the Zagok, the Zok, and the Akgai, plus the mobile armor Grabro. We discussed the Gog and what inspired its look back in episodes 1.23 and 1.24, so now let's talk about the others. We have a lot to get through, but thankfully I think this batch is pretty straightforward, so we're going to keep it short and sweet. As always, there will be pictures in the show notes, and I'll make some graphics for our social media. First up, the Zagok. Before we start on the look, let's talk about the name, because before it got the name Gog, that other mobile suit was going to be called Gok, and the Zagok, or Zogok, would be a variant of it. The Gok became the Gog, possibly for legal reasons, but the Zagok kept its name. There's a claim floating around that the Zagok is based on a monster called Alien Zarab, or Zarab, Zarab, Alien Zarab, from the Ultraman series, and I can kind of buy it based on the appearance. But unfortunately, this claim is totally unsourced, and it only ever appears in fan-run pages like TV Tropes and the Gundam and Ultraman wikis, so I have no idea where it came from. 
There's also almost certainly some influence from early diving suits that had flattish metal heads studded with numerous small glass portholes. At least one early design looks very much like the Zagok's head, and others have the same segmented bellows-style arms and claws for hands, but we'll talk more about those in a second. Next, the Zok. When I'm trying to figure out where a mobile suit's design comes from, I always like to start by identifying what about that suit is weird or different compared to the aesthetics of other designs in the series. For the Zok, the question is actually, what part of this design isn't weird? Because, <laughs> all right, note this aquatic mobile suit's green color, beak-like protrusion at the front, stubby legs, three clawed hands, and especially the divot in the top of its head, where for some reason it hides a, quote, phonon maser gun. Despite my initial skepticism, all of those are real words, even phonon. Masers, first developed in 1953, are a predecessor to lasers and project microwaves instead of light. Phonons are the particle description of sound, so a phonon is to sound as a photon is to light. Our physics consultant, Iraj, pointed out that a phonon maser gun doesn't make sense, <laughs> because a phonon gun would be noise-based, and a maser gun would be microwave-based. But microwaves and sound are fundamentally different things, so a device that does what a maser does but for sound instead of microwaves should actually be called something like a saser. <laughs> and hey, those are a thing happening now. Caltech, University of Nottingham, and the Lashkarev Institute of Semiconductor Physics at the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine have all been working on very experimental saser designs since around 2010. But I don't think that Gundam calling the Zox weapon a phonon maser means they didn't understand the science. I think it's actually an artifact of the scientific vocabulary of the time. See, in 1964, physicist and inventor of the maser, Charles H. Towns, gave his Nobel Prize lecture, and in it he speculated about the possibility that phonons could be mazed. Yeah, that's the verb. <laughs> and when the laser was first imagined back in 1957, it was originally called an optical maser. So I think maser must have just been used in the scientific community at that time to describe any device that was conceptually similar to a maser. Anyway, those features all make it pretty clear to me that the Zok is based on that dangerous water imp of Japanese folklore, the Kappa. <laughs> I love Kappa. Kappa <laughs> are amazing. While depictions of the Kappa vary across different regions in Japan, the one universal feature is that the Kappa has a cavity in its head filled with water, and if that water is ever spilled, the Kappa will be paralyzed. Other common Kappa features are green skin, a beak, three clawed hands, and stubby legs. One final observation here. We know that someone on the Gundam creative team, perhaps Tomino himself, has a fondness for wordplay in languages other than Japanese. We learned that in the first episode when slender denim jeans infiltrated Side 7. Among the truly unique visual features of the Zok is the shape of its mono-eye track. So far, we've encountered a straight track on the Zaku, Goof, and Zagok, a cross on the Dom, and an inverted T-shape on the Gog and Akkai. But our Kappa-shaped mobile suit, the Zok, has a mono-eye track that is shaped like the letter K. Or perhaps like the Greek letter from which the modern K is derived. You know, the Greek letter Kappa. <laughs> Finally, at least for today, the Akkai. These fan-favorite mechs can be distinguished from the other Xeon amphibious suits by their brown and black color scheme, their bulbous and forward-tilted heads, the roundness of their joints, and the fact that their body is not divided into distinct chest and groin sections the way it is on all the others. They also have those same rigid claw-like manipulators that were on the Zagok, rather than the flexible claws of the Gog and the Zok. Okay, 
There are, I think, two important visual references here. The first is the famous Jim Atmospheric Diving Suit, invented in 1969 and first deployed in 1974. An atmospheric diving suit is basically a human-shaped submarine that resembles a suit of armor or an amphibious mobile suit. The Jim suit has the rounded joints, all one-piece body, and bulbous forward-tilted head. It also has grasping claws that might have partly inspired those on the Zagok or the Akai. The other reference for the Akai might be the Kamai Tachi, another demon out of Japanese folklore. These are weasel demons with what? the fur of a hedgehog. Yep, weasel <laughs> demons. They have the fur of a hedgehog and the cry of a dog, and they ride on or within whirlwinds and cut people with the sickle-like blades on their hands. So Sandshrew. Or the Tasmanian Devil. <laughs> the Tasmanian Sandshrew. As weasel demons, they are often brown and black colored with sickle hands, like the act guy. Or the sand shrew. <laughs> oh, and the grab bro? It looks like a crab from some angles and a duck from other angles. I don't know what you want from me. This one's not very interesting. <laughs> crab duck. Duck crab. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Crab duckin'. You might have noticed, as we did, that one of the Akai commandos in Shar's second raid on Jaburo has a distinctive large reddish-brown nose. It stuck out in the literal sense, but also in the figurative sense, because we've seen characters with noses like that before. The first one to my mind was the peddler slash mole man from Escaflone, but there are definitely others as well. And we weren't alone. Despite their extremely brief appearances in the anime, the Akai and this particular pilot both stood out enough that they earned recurring spots in Gundam media over the years, including in video games and so on. And after some digging, I found out that this guy has actually been given a name, Akahana. <laughs> but if you speak Japanese, you'll no doubt recognize that Akahana just means red nose. It's also the Japanese medical term for rosacea, a skin condition that causes redness and swelling in the face and particularly in the nose. Untreated rosacea can lead a person to develop a condition called rhinophyma and the development of a large, bulbous, red-flushed nose like the one Akahana sports in Gundam. The exact causes of rosacea and rhinophyma are unknown, but for a long time, and still somewhat today, it was thought to be a symptom of alcoholism. And there is some evidence that alcohol consumption does increase the redness in those who are already affected by the condition. So that big red nose on that minor character... It's a kind of visual shorthand for, this fellow has a problem with excessive alcohol consumption. He's a drunk. It's a small thing, and entirely unnecessary for this sort of character. But it shows how the creators, and in particular the character designer Yasuhiko, really invested even the most insignificant background characters in Gundam with a unique look and enough meaningful detail that you can read from them a general impression of a personality. Really helps the world to live. Like the personality of that guy who was like, well, I can't bring myself to shoot these kids, but I will tie them up and leave them next to a bunch of bombs. I believe he had a mustache. It was a very snidely whiplash kind of moment. <laughs> We didn't have a chance to get to know Woody, but his death and those of the other Jaburo defenders are no less tragic. It feels appropriate then to honor these unnamed dead with a slightly modified text that appears on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Here rests in honored glory, soldiers known but to God.
next time on episode 1.26, Fire Broadside. Trapped by Earth's gravity. Skirts. Sayla hesitates. Big grabby bros. Monster, I mean mobile suit of the week. Hayato fails to improve. Command authority. Friendly fire and the best mobile armor in Gundam. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSP Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Soft serve is better than orange juice on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. That's not wrong. You're wrong. What does that have to do with Gundam? Remember the robot in this episode? I know, but it's like, it's not a Gundam opinion. It's a life opinion. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Mic test episode one point two four, I think. Ooh, we have to. We should figure that out before we start doing this. That's a behind-the-scenes photo. <laughs> I'm laughing too hard. I need to look like angry. Just special place in hell for people who rev their engines. <laughs> Okay. Ready? Okay. <laughs> your, com- your complete lack of response to that is very disappointing. <laughs> you don't have to you don't have to fake a response there, that's fine. That was I I actually giggled at the second one. My stomach is growling. Oh, you need um, a snack. I need a, a snack, a break, and let's come back on the lies of Sailor Mass. Okay. Yes. Which I have wanted to name like six different episodes <laughs> of the lies of Sailor Mass. Mm-hmm.